Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I was a wreck, but um, I did continue to indulge, I must confess. And uh, finally, I had a particularly um, powerful experience in Kingston a few years later, and I realized that this was something that I couldn't handle, and uh, I never smoked again. My name is John Doran, and I write about music. In the past, on British Masters for Noisy, I have interviewed such luminaries as Noel Gallagher, Dizzy Rascal, and Jimmy Page. In this series, I will be speaking to other outliers in the field of popular music. Usually what links my interviewees is their prominence in my record collection, but today's guest has actually never made a record. David Rodigan is one of the more unlikely famous figures in the history of Jamaican music, being that he's a white, middle-class Englishman. But as a DJ, Ram Jam has been plying his trade for over half a century now and is loved by countless reggae devotees and performers the world over. So, David, can you tell me about your first taste of Jamaican music and how your initial introduction to this culture kind of uh, contrasted with your background and upbringing? The first encounter with it was 1964 when I heard this record called My Boy Lollipop. And there was a show called Ready, Steady, Go, and she sang it on there. And it was also a pop chart hit. And I remember there was a programme called um, Jukebox Jury, and they reviewed it and they discussed this new sound that had come from Jamaica called Blue Beat, because that was the record label it was issued on. And I wasn't really, I mean, I was aware of it, but it was in 66 that it really hit me, 67, when I heard records by Prince Buster, notably Al Capone and The Guns of Navarone by the Scatterlights. And that's where the fever began. It was the 67, it was the original Summer of Love. We had flowers in our hair and It was an amazingly hot summer and this music was everywhere. This music had an incredible energy that I simply couldn't resist. And I remember I'd sneak in lunchtimes into the school drum kit and I tried to do the scar rim shots. I just found it so exciting to listen to and to dance to. And it was incredibly popular. I mean, all my buddies, we all loved it. And when you went to a club, it was played. It was played a lot. As the 60s progressed towards the 70s and the Jamaican sound becoming through Rocksteady into reggae itself, the sound got darker, deeper and um, more serious. And I was you know, during this period, I think really a lot of whitelessness really fell away from the reggae sound. But what was it about reggae that kind of really hooked you in? Because I enjoyed the, the quiet, beautiful, cool sound of Rocksteady. 
and it was 66 to 68, and I didn't really know what was going on, but I knew the beat had changed, and I discovered it was called Rocksteady. And that's when my friends, friends fell away from it because it didn't have the, the driving pace of Scar. And they just said, oh, this is too slow to dance to, and, and, and they, they left it. I was the only one that still liked it. It really enabled the singers to have their moment uh, on record, which they had to fight against the driving beat of Scar, but on Rocksteady, they were allowed to sail. And I love the cool bass lines and the lovely horn arrangements. I bought this album called Put It On, It's Rocksteady, which Chris Blackwell released on Island Records. And it was 14 tracks, including Put It On by The Wailers, which is when I first really became aware of them. So it still held me. I, I, I still bought it. I couldn't resist it. And all my friends, well, some of them mocked me for it and said, you know, it's not cool. And then, it, of course, it became particularly uncool when by 68, 69, it had kicked into reggae and there was an undertone to it that was, um, well, unpleasant to say the least because the skinheads had adopted it. And of course, the, the racism which came with that, the, the beating up of Pakistani youths and so on. So it was particularly unpleasant to be associated with it. People said to me, you actually like that stuff? So it was difficult. When did you first break your DJing cherry? <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, I guess at the, the, the school disco on Thursdays in the gymnasium, we charged sixpence for admission. And there were, it was the school, we were allowed to use the school gramophone player, which had quite a big speaker. So that was me <laughs> popping my cherry as, as a DJ in that I was playing uh, Scar, Rocksteady and Soul Records. And then... At the same time, around that period, because I collected records, um, I was invited to come to people's houses when they had house parties to play them when I was uh, 16, 17, 18. Yeah. So if I've got my maths right, that means you've been a reggae DJ for over half a century. <laughs> I'm afraid I have. Yes. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons we're here today is we're talking about your autobiography and you know I was very interested at how candid you are about certain things in the book and one of them is like the use of uh, drugs now I should say for somebody who's been a reggae DJ for half a century your involvement with drugs has been quite innocent or innocuous by many standards I'd say but from reading your book also I'd say the history that you do have is slightly checkered like for example you know you you were busted for cannabis possession when you were a teenager, and then some would say maybe things went downhill from there. Yeah, I mean, I was busted for cannabis possession, that's true. Um, and I did stop smoking, and then I started smoking again. But I think one of the moments where I realised it probably wasn't for me was when I was interviewing Burning Spear. The interview descended into chaos because I actually couldn't structure sentences, and then I started laughing and giggling. And then in the end, I was actually on the ground, on the football ground, and, and he just stood above me in his red and black hoop shirt, just laughing, and said, you can't take it, can you? And I, and I just, I can't. Finally, um, as I say in the book, I had a particularly um, powerful experience um, in Kingston a few years later, and I realized that this was something that I couldn't handle, and uh, I never smoked again. Do you have, like, an overview of, like, the role that kind of drugs play in the kind of Jamaican music industry? Because obviously, even from my point of view, there are both positive and negative aspects to this. 
Many musicians do not smoke. And you'd be surprised at, at some of the names that I could throw at you right now who just don't point blank. Um, many do. As I'm sure everyone knows, it's very much a part of Rastafari and, and the movement of Rastafari and the life of Rastafari because it's seen as a, as a sacrament that was found on the grave of King Solomon. So the historical and, and um, righteous reasons for using it within that world. But of course, it has always grown naturally in Jamaica. For those that make music under its influence, it brings um, uh, vibrations, it brings um, enlightenment, and uh, the singers and writers will tell you that it, it brings them I inspiration. But what about when you get somebody like the absolute genius that is Lee Scratch Perry? I mean, you've got a person who I can't tell really as an outsider, but you've met him several times. But, you know, for me, it's hard to distinguish how much of this is eccentricity, how much is an act, how much is it is genuine kind of drug psychosis. And can you even disentangle his kind of chemically altered perception from his true visionary kind of work in sound? That's a very interesting question, and I've tried to answer it in, to myself. The first time I met him was at his studio in Washington Gardens, and as I approached, um, he was in the garden, and he had ballet tights on and a cloak, and, um, and I said, hi, Lee, I'm really great to see you, and he said, no, no, it's Pipecock Jackson, not Lee Perry. When I have interviewed him, he is a wordsmith. I mean, there's no two ways about that. He's clearly an incredibly gifted, verging on genius as a producer. I mean, when you look at the work that he created in the Black Art Studio, it is truly phenomenal. And you can see that he was smoking then, and I think he may have been drinking too. As far as I know, I don't think he takes anything now. Yeah. And he, I believe he's 80 years of age, and he's yeah. still touring in Brazil, Europe. I mean, it's quite phenomenal. I went to see him live last year. It was great. It's you know? absolutely amazing. He's the Salvador Dali of reggae, in a way. But he did create one of the best reggae albums of all time, Soul Rebel, by the, by the Whalers. He produced that. He knew what to leave out. And if you look at tracks like Police and Thieves and War in a Babylon, I mean, the, the list is long. In more recent years, the influential black newspaper, The Voice, has referred to you as an honorary black person. Um, but going back to 1978, when you were offered, you know, your first really big prominent role as a reggae DJ for an indie kind of reggae show on uh, Radio London, you had certain misgivings about taking on the role because you're white, didn't you? Oh, without doubt. Um, the only reason that I even attended the interview was my girlfriend at the time was an actress. She knew I listened to the, the reggae time show on Radio London every Sunday. And it was announced on the radio that the presenter was leaving and they were looking for a new presenter. And she said, oh, you should do that. You'd be good at that. And I said, don't be ridiculous. I, yeah, I wouldn't get that. So she actually wrote off on my behalf and I didn't know. Mm. And an audition came through. And I said, well, she said, oh, I wrote on your behalf, so why don't you go down? And I did. And um, I was the only white person in a room full of black people. And um, the producer was David Carter. Uh, who'd worked on uh, Canadian Broadcasting, was working at Radio London, and he'd produced the show with Steve Barnard, and he stopped the audition after 15 minutes. And he said, um, in 15 minutes, you've taught me more about this music than I knew. He said, but unfortunately, we can't offer you the position because you are the wrong colour. We're looking for a black presenter. And I totally understood that, you know. And um, what actually happened, I, I found out afterwards, was they then played that audition tape to a number of people in the reggae industry in Britain, in London. 
and apparently um, a lot of them said, whoever he is, you should use him. But he didn't tell them I was white. Right. So <clears throat> in the end, there were four of us co-hosting on, on a role, and then, and then eventually it was two of us, and then eventually I left uh, BBC Radio London and joined Capital Radio. What percentage of your audience thought you were black, do you reckon? I think the vast majority did. From everything that's been told to me over the years, um, they presumed I was a black Londoner um, because I spoke uh, with passion and knowledge about a music which I had loved and still love passionately, and I knew about it. Around this period, you had kind of parallel careers for many years as like both actor and reggae DJ. And I was wondering, um, how did you see yourself at the time? Were you an actor who happened to be into a bit of reggae or a reggae DJ who I was just an happened to do? I was an actor who loved reggae and by accident ended up with a Sunday lunchtime reggae show on the BBC. It was only upon the birth of our second son um, that I decided, um, well, I, in order to, to provide for my family, I would have to seriously consider whether or not I was going to pursue an acting career. I mean, I was filming Shackleton, and we were filming up in Edinburgh, and, and you know, I was having to, the, the director had to release me at, at five o'clock to get a plane back down to be on, the, on Capital Radio at 10 o'clock that night. That kind of thing became, proved to be difficult. And what really sealed it was when Kiss FM offered me a daytime show, um, and, uh, and, and I took it. Were you ever coerced, bribed or threatened to play music on commercial radio? I was certainly uh, coerced and I was, uh, there was an attempt uh, on more than one occasion to bribe me. Um, there was a very big producer who attempted to bribe me within a few weeks of being on Radio London in a pub. And he told me, this is an envelope and you should pick it up because this is what happens. This is what, what we do. And I said to him, if I pick up this envelope, which I'm not going to do, but if I were to do so, I would forever be your boy and I would forever be under your jurisdiction and I would have to play what you wanted me to play. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. So by the early 80s, you'd already been playing UK reggae bands. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, that had their very own kind of unique style and message. So I'm talking bands like Misty and Roots, uh, Steel Pulse, Aswad. And, you know, their music carried a very blunt, if sometimes bleak, picture of what it meant to be black in the UK at the time. So I'm guess what I was thinking, you know, given this background you had with this music, were you surprised when the kind of rioting spread across the UK? I wasn't surprised because by then uh, many of my friends were black um, and they told me of the experiences of being young black Brits, of being chucked in the back of a Mariah. Um, I think Sonny's letter by Linton Quasey Johnson, if ever there was any doubt in anyone's mind about how bad it was for black youth, especially youth in those days, things like that happened uh, on a regular basis. The police didn't have to have a reason. Um, they suspected you of being, of, of being up to no good and they could throw you in the back of a... Of a of... So yes, not surprised at all. And, and I remember black people telling me that oh, their parents told them, oh, you know, don't respond and so and of course, it just became relentless. And in the end, it exploded, literally. So by the mid-80s, more and more of your audience were learning that you were white rather yeah. than a black man. Yeah. But I wanted to know how this dynamic has changed, especially since the 80s, you know, of you being, you know, a well-educated from a good family, white voice, pretty much soul in what was a very, very black culture. How has this dynamic changed over the years? It's changed because reggae's had a profound influence on other forms of music, most notably jungle. Uh, in more recent years, um, we've seen, with dubstep particularly, we've seen the fusion of roots rock reggae music and dub music um, and its impact whereby uh, dubstep came through and really formed this great cohesion. And I started to get it, and my eldest son got it, and, and my younger son got it, and they were telling me about this music, and then I started to hear what, what was being created by people like Casper and so on, and Roscoe and, and Breakage, and I could hear this, 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 this music. So when that erupted and became incredibly popular as it did, I was caught up in a whirlpool whereby my voice has been sampled on some records, and people wanted to know who's that guy and where's it from. Well, those things had been lifted from on jungle records and, and dubstep records from events that I'd done, you know, how many years ago, clashes and so on and so forth. So um, the door uh, opened and I was invited in. And I think the crucial moment was when Casper um, invited me to play at Dub Police. And Sean from Fabric said, yes, you absolutely must come down. And I remember that night, and I will always remember it, Casper um, welcomed me on stage and I stood there and the lights came up and I didn't know what to do. I was absolutely terrified. I saw a sea of white, very young faces and I thought, why did I accept this? What am I going to play? And I put on a dub plate and the place imploded. They went absolutely nuts. Like, it was ridiculous. And I realised there was another world and I was invited into it 
And since then, I've been playing at festivals where I would normally never have even dreamed of appearing, um, from festival and camp festival and so on, and uh, park life, playing to audiences that I wouldn't really have ever thought that I could play to. And I think more than anything else, it was the Rebel Sound moment when I joined forces with Jai Fex and, and Chase and Status, and we created these beats for that sound clash uh, to a couple of years ago. Reggae music had exploded, the roots of it, the dub, the DJs, the MCs, the energy of sound boys. I mean, the whole thing of drum and bass having an MC out front while the selector plays, that all came from reggae music. And um, I am enjoying this new world because it enables me, and this is the great thing, to, to reflect upon the music that I've always loved. So I can play Scar, I can play Rocksteady. Uh, it can be as obvious a Prince Buster record to an obscure B-side on Studio One. And um, because the audience are up for it and are interested in it, um, I'm able to do that, and um, that's, for me, very exciting. Have you ever had a greater compliment paid to your DJing skills than a policeman shooting his gun through the ceiling when you've dropped a particularly great track? I'll never forget that night. When I played that Junior Reed, I heard... <laughs> and I, I was... Ah, what was that? And they said, that's your first legal gunshot salute. Gun salute. And off-duty... Because the, the, the voices went up, legal! I mean, it was an off-duty policeman who'd taken his firearm out, as opposed to yeah. a, uh, a Don from the area who yeah. had not done so. I was absolutely cacking myself, I can tell you. Yeah, as you would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the ricochet off the... the anyway, it, was, it really was. What was that? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you've, I think you recently just passed retirement age. But <laughs> yes, I did. It feels like you've never been more relevant really, you know, you're a big festival draw, um, you know, you're kind of very much uh, looked up to by lots of people in the dubstep and grime scene, you're on one extra of all things, you know, it's like, well, I mean, so it's, it doesn't really seem like you've kind of got any intention of, of kind of calming things down in the near future, but what, what are your future plans? I still enjoy it, John. I enjoy it immensely. And somebody once said, retirement's for people who stop doing what they never really wanted to do and start doing what they always wanted to do. I think that if you enjoy what you do, um, it, brings you, it brings you joy, it brings you happiness. And um, there's no greater uh, gift than to share that. Uh, I hope that doesn't sound too rich, but um, I still enjoy turning people on. I remember as a teenager, um, 14, 15, hanging out my bedroom window to see the records, if the records I were playing on my turntable were having any effect on the kids playing in the various yards. And I think it's very, very important. Um, if you have a gift and you can share it, then you, can, you should continue to do so. Um, it, I, 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 what else am I going to do? I mean, it, I still love it and the phone still rings and the old theatrical joke, when the phone rings, don't answer it too quickly. And <laughs> you know, I think of... Yeah, I'll, I'll check my diary, but actually yeah. you just want to play, don't you? You just want to work. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for your patience, everyone. That was me, John Doran, talking to a British musician who has changed the course of popular culture. This is the British Masters Podcast. Watch the visual versions of the episodes on YouTube by searching Noisy British Masters and subscribe here to get new episodes of the audio version. Godspeed, friends, and remember, listen to Electric Wizard. <laughs>